Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Catherine Gray, the award-winning author of The Unexpected Joy of Books. Catherine's debut book, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, was a huge hit, becoming a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller within a fortnight of it coming out. And she's also the author of The Unexpected Joy of Being Single and The Unexpected Joy of the Ordinary. She is now back with a brand new book called Sunshine Warm Sober, Unexpected Sober Joy that lasts. This could be called the hotly anticipated sequel to The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, but I read it in a sort of separate way from her previous books. It's all about her eighth year of being sober and what she's learned since the last book. We talk about the power of writing personally. We talk about boundaries. We talk about how there's no happily ever after necessarily, and we're always on the onwards journey. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I found the book raw, reflective, and it's a book about rooting for yourself. I really recommend getting a copy of it. I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Catherine. And here it is. So welcome, Catherine. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you. It's a great privilege looking at your other guests. I can't quite believe I'm here. (laughs) Well, I've been listening to you on other podcasts and loving it. So I was like, oh God, the pressure's on. I need to ask you some good questions. Uh, It's now my turn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'll come up with the goods. (laughs) Well, congratulations on your new book, Sunshine, Warm, Sober. It was such a good read and really kind of not what I expected. I don't know what I expected, but it's so creatively written. You've, You've got all these vignettes in there and there's you kind of even got scenes like they're from a play and you've just told this story in such a magical way. So I just wanted to start off with congratulations for this book. Thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think people listening will know you from the unexpected joy of books, especially the unexpected joy of being sober, which was the book I feel on on that topic. And I know you did so many interviews about it, but this book feels so, so different. And I guess I wanted to start off just by asking you why you felt the need to write this one, because it really does feel like you're covering a different chapter. And I think it speaks on the whole that life doesn't just end in this happily ever after full stop thing. It's like life continues. And this book really speaks to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I pretty much when I published The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, which was sort of like the publishing equivalent of pulling a pin from a grenade and seeing if it blew up in my face. It was so ridiculously raw and honest and gritty and just letting it all hang out. Um, And I was four years sober when I published it, so I was kind of ready for it. But what I wasn't really expecting was that um, now I'm just coming up on eight years sober, that I was going to learn pretty much an equal amount in the last four years about staying sober and being happy and being a you know semi-functioning adult Um, and that I would want to share all of that as well so it's a bit like um, Yoda says much to learn you still have and (laughs) I, I just I try to remind myself of that every day I'm like my cup is never full my cup is never full but I frequently think oh no I know all about that now I know I know and then I'm kicked in the ass and and reminded that I don't so yeah it's it's about the last four years and about how staying sober is about so much more than just putting down the alcohol yes and I in in your book there is a line that says my previous books were gritty we're about to get even grittier and (laughs) it is 
you go deeper in in this book on some of your memories and anecdotes and and I guess the bits that maybe you would have felt ashamed about at some point but bringing them into the light I feel like shame can't exist it's probably Brené Brown quote somewhere about how shame can't exist when you share um, because so many people will see themselves in it but did you feel like you needed that distance in order to go back there for this book oh definitely I mean I think you need distance I needed much more time with Kat Cath 2.0 before I was willing to completely, you know, share. and it's even then I've still held some stuff back because you can't share a hundred percent. That would just, they're in madness lies. Um, and I completely agree with that Brené Brown quote. And, and something I've always said is that stigmas grow in the shadow lands. Mm-hmm. And when you bring them into the light, when you talk, I mean, you look on Instagram and there's so much uh, radical honesty now. It feels like there's this real pretense amnesty um the bright side of social media is people kind of showing their their real acne and talking about how postnatal depression and eating disorders and things like that and when you bring stuff like that out into the light you do wither the stigma a little bit more you chip away at it and if you come out and say it then there's less of that fear of being busted of being revealed of being found out um and but I think one of the ways that you do need some distance from it in many many cases in order to have the um distance and objectivity to share about it and yeah so I think you're right I needed the years to get there for this book I'm always so amazed when people do share in real time what they're going through I actually know someone at the moment who's going through severe burnout and she's kind of live blogging it almost on Instagram and I I'm I'm in awe of it, but I'm also like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. I think I need to go hide away in a cave for a bit and work it out myself and then maybe share afterwards if I've got anything to share. But yeah, it's a weird one. I I, each their own, obviously, but I I like to work out for myself first. Me too, definitely. It's like that um, Joan Didion quote, I don't know what I think until I write it down. And when I'm in something, I don't quite know what I think about it. Say, for instance, um, recently I experienced this real bout of jealousy. It was completely irrational jealousy. And I wrote about it in my journal, but I didn't actually write about it, write about it until six months afterwards um, when I wrote about it in the most recent book and just how it feels to burn through that jealousy. Um, but yeah, so, so I take my hat off to anyone that can do it in live real time. I don't think I could do that. I, I need time to process it like you. <laughs> yeah. This book is just so raw and it's just so human because I think it's funny sometimes when people say they have been sober for a long time or they've made a drastic life change, sometimes there is this, I don't know, this naivety or this stereotype that that person has now got their life together forever. And not that there's a smugness, but there's like a kind of, oh, they're, they're just off and away now and cool. And in this book, I just, I just loved the honesty of also the real voices and how uh, we're all triggered all the time. And actually our past selves aren't just deleted from our desktop it's like they're still there in some ways and we're triggered by things and the bit in the book that spoke to me was even when I'm doing you know dry January or something and I'm watching tv and someone's having a glass of wine I'm instantly it it has a real kind of immediate effect and, and people are living with this these triggers would you be able to talk about that and why you included it yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of them, so that, that quote about the being triggered by people on TV, that was, um, there's loads of case studies in the book. 
And a lot of them actually said that they're triggered by people drinking on TV. Because there was a study that found that drinking on TV and in films is 80 to 95% of the time in like a, this rosy glow. And you don't get any of the consequences or the hangovers of drinking. So it's, it's a triggery thing. But um, yeah, I mean, the thing, the, one of the things in the book that is the most personal is I write a lot about how I went back into my childhood and drew all these lines between things that trigger me now, things that I do now that I had no idea why I did do them. Like, for instance, when I feel like I'm in trouble, I get this urge to spring clean my entire flat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I know why that is, because I went back into my childhood and turned over all these stones that I hadn't turned over before through therapy and there's so much of our adult life that is being is being informed by things that happened before we were even 10 and you can trace these lines and make a map and find out why something that happened when you were four can make you react in a in a disproportionate way when you're 40 so it's just um mind-blowing to me when you realize that the conscious mind is only the tip of the iceberg there's, there's so much beneath the surface the underside of the iceberg that is driving our urges and emotions and reactions. Um, and that was so empowering to dig into that. Yeah, because I, I find it very empowering to know that our brains are learning all the times and kind of all the time and creating new patterns because this idea of feeling stuck comes, I guess, from feeling like you can't change. And this idea that you can actually con- completely rewire your brain if you want to. And and I and I got that from the book. I was thinking we can literally be different people if we want to. And yeah. I just need, I just love that reminder. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, so much of it is nurture. And you can just, when I compare myself now, I mean, there's so much more still to, still to work on. We're never finished and we're never fixed. And but I am I am completely different as a person from who I was eight years ago. And that is just a case of daily trying and daily, you know, rewriting neural pathways. I never thought I'd get to the stage where I don't smoke or don't drink or don't, you know, go out and end up in Tiger Tiger and sleep with a random man. <laughs> so <laughs> It's just, you know, you you can become a completely different person and it's really hippie and a a bit touchy-feely and I'm normally allergic to that, but I really like that. um, Apparently it's it's an actual fact that we, every seven years, we're composed of entirely different cells um, because our cells regenerate and, you know, renew. And I love that. I love that we are made of different stuff every seven years. And it just reminds you that you can renew and rebuild and rewrite. Yes, I really love that as well. And during the lockdowns, even when you're kind of my shellac had grown out and my hair had gone really long and weird and I was like oh this is like showing my growth in many ways (laughs) (laughs) trying to read into it absolutely my feet were like a gruffalo's (laughs) (laughs) I I mean I feel like most people are very different a different person after after this year and we're all reflecting and going inwards and I've actually had some real heart-to-hearts with people who I haven't gone there with for a long time and it's almost like we're kind of getting a bit more real with our emotions and who we want to be and I think alcohol has been a huge part of that for people because you know it's it's like everything's been stripped away and if you're having you know a lot to drink at home on your own during lockdown because you don't have a social life you can't help but question why that is 
Mm, definitely. I think, I mean, all the data shows, there's so much data on this. More than half of Brits have drank more over the past year, which I think has led a lot of people to question because they thought they were social drinkers before. And then suddenly all socialising is cancelled and they're drinking more. So I think a, a lot of people have been quite startled by that. Um, in a way, you know, it's completely understandable. We've been through a, a near apocalypse. It's just felt like the most destabilising time of our living history. So it's it's no surprise that people drank more. But I do think that people are probably questioning that about themselves and, and wondering how they're going to go forward from here and whether they're just going to, you know, be constantly smashed from June 21st onwards. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that like the nations or the world even is like gearing up for this almighty piss up. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. But then there's a lot of people thinking, do I want my life to look like that now? That's the thing. And I feel like a huge part of it is continuing on. And how do you just remind yourself um, how good you feel and how future you will thank you for the decisions you make today and I know you've interviewed Spencer Matthews before and I interviewed him a while ago for a panel and I remember him saying something about how he almost got not addicted but like kind of really inspired by his new self and in this way he was living his life that he almost wanted to continue that the urge for that outweighed the urge for the old life that's really yeah. interesting I think I think it's true. You can you can turn that upside down and sort of get addicted to the good stuff. Um, I, I'm definitely slightly reliant on exercise. You know, I love it. It just releases the, the endorphins and the the feelings that you know the first drink used to release back when I was still enjoying drinking. So it it you can find other ways of releasing the stress and getting that lift and all of that. So I really relate to what he said. And a big theme of your book for me that jumped out was about boundaries. And I, uh, that word, I've, to be honest, I've had only learned it like a few years ago. And now I feel like <laughs> I say it every five minutes. <laughs> I'm obsessed exactly with having boundaries because mine was just <laughs> invisible and it was a problem. Yeah. Um, and you talk about, you know, how you do need good boundaries when you are making good changes in your life because you kind of need to have that distance from maybe other people or other people influencing you or just just feeling like you're in control and then I kind of wanted to follow up with another question about boundaries about writing but we'll start with um why you wanted to include the bit about boundaries when it comes to being sober as well oh well do you know it's one of those things that you think is completely unrelated to not drinking but it's one of the most important things you can do because when you have totally invisible non-existent or permeable boundaries which I did until about two years ago and like you I just didn't even really know what it meant I was like boundaries something to do with property I don't know fences walls um, and that, and then it just has become one of the most important processes of my life I, I would go so far to say as just teaching other people how to treat you because if you don't do that if you just let them treat you however they want then you're going to feel resentful and you're going to feel taken advantage of. And you people often drink at other people. You know, they finish mm. the working day and they haven't said to their boss how they feel about the way they treated them over that project. And they they turn to wine because th that's how they're going to numb it and, yeah. you know, use it as an anesthetic. So and, and there's another real trend for, you know, when the world reopens, if you stay at a party too long, 
it's really common if you if you let people go oh no don't go stay we want you to stay even though you want to go um, it's really common to pick up a drink then if you're on a like a newly hatched sober journey so it's so important but so difficult because you have to say no and people yeah. don't like it when you set boundaries especially if they were breakdancing all over your lap of boundaries but they're, they're not into it at all so it's a tough process it's so true it's so true I'm I'm still at the beginning of my boundaries journey but I'm it's very very uncomfortable and I think <laughs> yeah you really tell it how it is with how hard it can be but really really important I actually saw a tweet the other day that said if someone doesn't respect your boundaries they don't respect you and oh. it was so clear cut that that sentence where I was like I don't I don't want people to walk all over me and not respect me like if they're not respecting the boundaries then it's it is a personal thing and it's yeah, got to change definitely so with with boundaries around writing so I know you touched on how you know this is a very very honest book and you have written about your life before but you've you know you've gone there maybe perhaps even more in this book which is so great because it we're you know it it really invites the reader in to be like we're all we've all got stuff like this going on um how did you know where to set that boundary when you were writing this one? Oh, you mean what to leave out and what to keep in yeah that's such a great question um well when I wrote the first book, I got some really good advice from my top most work confidant. And she always reads whatever I write before anyone else. And she said, look, I love your brutal honesty, but just skim 10% off the top here. <laughs> you don't need to, you don't need to tell, you know, I know that you're really happy about telling people things, but you don't need to tell them everything. Uh, so I did and I've done that ever since so I would say that probably 20% doesn't make it to the page at all and then I take another 10% off any manuscript it's just the bits where you're like mm, I'm not sure about that and you'll know because they niggle and you'll know that you're not sure about sharing them and so you just whip them out in the final rewrite um, because I, even though I really truly believe in like the healing power of honesty and how bringing it into the light really makes a difference I don't think you necessarily ever have to tell anyone even your therapist your best friend your sponsor or whatever a hundred percent of you know the bad things you've done and I'm, I'm not sure that's ever advisable because for a start they could blackmail you <laughs> <laughs> they could they could get thousands of fans out of you no I'm sure they wouldn't but I yeah I think there's there's always a case for holding something back even if it is just that final 10 percent I hear what you're saying on that it's funny because I interviewed Christy Tate recently he wrote a memoir called group and she was saying that part of her thing was like she had to tell just at least one person everything just because then it was like at least it's all out of your system but that doesn't mean telling everyone yeah uh, yeah I mean there's definitely one person that I've told 90% of it to and that is one of my other sober friends and she did the same mm. with me but even then you know there was a couple of things that I held back and but I really respect people who can do the 100% honesty um, but the, the one thing that I really noticed with when I started coming out about, you know, alcohol addiction and anxious attachment and infidelity and shoplifting and being in trouble with the police and all of the things that I've written about now is that you start to feel so before there was like two versions of me. There was the version that I was showing people, which was 
mostly pretense and the version that was real, you know, the version, the 4am ceiling staring version of me. And when you stop dropping the, the two versions, you just, you're just one version. You're just one version of you. Mm-hmm. And even though you don't necessarily have to tell everybody everything, that means you don't have to remember any pretense or any lies, even if they were white lies or any sort of nuances that you added to things to make them sound better. And it's so refreshing and it really feels like a relief. And it, to me, it doesn't feel like a courageous thing. It feels more like just, oh, thank Thank heavens for that. I just feel so much lighter for it. Yeah, I totally know what you mean there because on a much smaller scale, I find something that has helped me recently is not feeling like I have to explain to people things all the time. Like yes, I can hold yes. information back. And I actually wrote a really long email to someone earlier because I had to, I had to move something or change something. And I just then kind of deleted half of it and was like, I'm just going to have to move this. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> like I it love was it. just this kind of, yeah, you don't owe anyone a huge explanation on your whole, on your life, basically. Yeah. You don't have to explain. And it's, is it Kate Moss that has the motto? Well, oh, yeah. who, who knows if she does because she's so enigmatic. Um, never complain and never explain. And I, I know exactly what you mean, because I have done that recently as well, where I've just deleted all this like garble where I'm like, because I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I'm like, why am I saying this? I just need to, you know, not do this thing or do it later or whatever. And it's so freeing when you realize that. And I think that is probably something that is culturally conditioned into women more. And that's women with an X, because we are just raised to be more compliant and more agreeable and more um giving and so when you're more abrupt and you say no and you don't want to do something and you don't have time to do that favor you feel like a bad person and we're not (laughs) it's okay to do that so it's it's definitely a a process (laughs) definitely definitely but it also feels really good because you're telling the truth and nothing feels better than the truth I feel so as long as you're just kind of staying in your in your own integrity it just it all feels very clean and clear communication rather than muddling it absolutely but I speaking of Kate Moss actually because she you mentioned her in the book there's that great uh, section where you talk about well-known names who have been sober or um you know made a life change in some way and I love the bit I can't remember who says it actually maybe it's Stephen King maybe it's someone else but Mm. there is a fear that if we lose that lose the alcohol or lose whatever then we might be less creative and I know that you've always been writing oh that was it David Starris and also it was really nice reading that list because I didn't know half of them were sober and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, did, did you find that your creativity shifted or changed in any way when you were sober? When you became sober, mm, sorry. Not in any way, but I never attached my creativity to drinking. So just because I think I was a, mm-hmm. I was a jobbing writer, you know, I was working for magazines. So I was working in an office and I, I you know, obviously wasn't drinking at work until right at the end. Um, so I was, I just didn't attach writing to having a drink, whereas I know a, a lot of people do, particularly if they've got a day job and they come home and they are creative in the evening. So I know that it's a huge, huge issue for a lot of people. They think that they're not going to be able to access the same creativity, but I never really felt like that. Um, so it wasn't something, it wasn't a block for me. 
That's good. I feel like every, it's that Hemingway quote that everyone should blame, isn't it? The right drunk edits over. Because yes. that still is something <laughs> that we learn from an early age, weirdly. I literally learned that quote so early on. And I was like, oh, yeah, great. You you just write when you're tipsy. And then I, <laughs> I, I interviewed Julia Cameron, um, who is obviously like the queen of creativity. And she was an alcoholic and, and became sober. And she just, she said it's the biggest myth of our time that you are more creative when you have substances because when it's all stripped away, that's when you're truly your most creative. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I wrote, I wrote an idea for a book down actually when I was absolutely blasted once and I thought it was the best book idea I'd ever had. And I, I found it recently like languishing in my drafts and it's so bad. (laughs) I can't, it's just absolute gobbledygook. nobody would ever want to print that book so I think it feels like genius at the time you feel like you've been struck by creative lightning like this will never strike again and then you actually read it and realize hopefully that um yeah you that's definitely not your best work (laughs) (laughs) definitely definitely and I really like how culturally we are talking about this more and more it's not this like thing that people get really defensive about anymore it's like we can talk about this topic whether you're completely sober not sober on the spectrum of it it's um it's nice to talk openly about it because I think for so long people were really protective about like no one saying a bad thing about alcohol it was really strange strange. yeah but I think the, the reverse has to be true too I think we need to be careful not to get into a space and I do see see some sober authors kind of straying into it where they demonize uh drinking almost and and drinkers and I just I just don't agree with that I drank my face off for 21 years I'm I don't judge drinkers in the least um I am a little bit anti-alcohol industry now because I just know so much about how manipulative and corrupt they are but you know drinkers are my people so it's just I, I love hanging out with them I love being around them and it's it's not I think it's very we need to be careful not to um go too far the other way if you see what I mean and yeah. for the for the two narratives to coexist because there are some people who can drink without terrible consequences there are some people who don't have a very uh, problematic relationship with it um and you know good for them but I would say that probably the majority of people do have a mixed up relationship with it. So they should be able to come out and say that without fear of um, being labeled or stigmatized. That's, that's really important. Definitely. And that's why I think your books and also Ruby Warrington's books that I love, it's all about sort of that curiosity and it coming at it from, well, with warmth, which is, you know, literally the name of your book about being sunshine (laughs) warm, you know, it's a, it's a nice positive conversation and, you know, there's no need to punish yourself unnecessarily. But at the same time, I think most people are getting curious about it, which is great. Um, And I just wanted to touch on the fact that near the end of the book, you kind of hint that you might not write too much more on this topic. Obviously, the door, you know, might be slightly open, but (laughs) you are going into fiction. Is that right? And kind of obviously still writing, but maybe not writing necessarily on this theme much more is that is that right yeah I mean I think well the main thing Emma is that I've rinsed most of my best anecdotes I literally don't have many more <laughs> stories I'd be like scraping the bottom of the barrel being like oh there was this one night 
Um, so well, this book I... is packed full of stuff. So if you have more, I would be very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe it will come, they'll come to me. It depends how skinny I am. No, I'm only kidding. Um, it, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm really enjoying, I've just started a fiction and I can't really say anything about it because I don't even really quite know what it is yet, but um, it's, it's so fun. You just make stuff up it doesn't have to be real and you don't have to fact check or anything and of course the best fiction though is based on reality and truth and fact and you know the actuality of the human experience so it's really handy as well to store all of those um stories that I haven't put in and disguise them in fiction because I can you know make them a part of a character or part of a scene and even though most of it is made up some of it you know isn't <laughs> and I yes. think the best fiction is somewhat autobiographical so there you go um yeah we'll see can't, can't <laughs> wait yeah because people say that novels are emotionally truthful and then yeah. memoir is like logistically kind of more truthful and I'm really excited to read that because like I said this this book as well even though it's non-fiction it's a lot of it's written in that sort of novel style is a it's just a really great read I loved it thank you so much and you know how much I'm enjoying Olive as well thank you (laughs) but I thought we could end on something I loved as well is that you say that you're in discovery rather than recovery and I really like that because I just think that kind of opens up everyone's world to discovering more about themselves and what have you recently discovered I mean it could be literally anything I just feel like we're all discovering new weird things about ourselves during lockdown or music or films or anything anything that that is such a good question (laughs) I think the main thing I've discovered over the past year because obviously we it's been illegal to go anywhere other than your local area for, for much of the past year is that I actually really like staying still. And I didn't know that about myself. I, I've always been like a wanderluster, a traveler. I've lived in lots of different places abroad. Um, actually, that's an exaggeration. We're being honest. I've lived in two different places abroad. <laughs> and um, I've always thought of myself as this kind of like gypsy wanderer. And I'm, I actually have loved staying still and growing roots and making local friends. And so that's something I didn't know about myself. But maybe that's just a case of growing into circumstance I don't know but um have you found that have you enjoyed staying still I have I I have struggled with not being able to see new things especially with my writing process I kind of bounce off being in different spaces and writing in different I mean it's kind of a privileged thing but just writing from different cafes or hotel rooms or going on little, little trips so it's actually been interesting to kind of make sure that I don't buy completely into that narrative that I can't be creative without moving. So yeah, I would say I have discovered that I can be all the things in staying in the same place. It's just a part of me wishes I could see other things. Yeah, <laughs> I get it, I get it. <laughs> but I think that's um, that's actually a really positive thing probably for a lot of people to realise they can be in their own company or they can be more still because not to get really like into stoic philosophy or anything, but being more still really is sort of you're on you're on a path then really to not needing a lot of the bells and whistles that we're sold every day definitely I mean the only thing I I would I do miss is um you know when you go on a mini break and obviously when you're only in your own place there's all this stuff to do you're looking around you're like I need to do that 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 
And I think the beauty of being away is that you don't need to actually do anything in the self-catering cottage or whatever, other than do the washing mm-hmm. up. And so there's, there is something to be said for that. That is one thing I do miss. But yeah, I think it's good to grow roots, but also move at the same time. And it's funny on the boundaries conversation. I know this sounds so bizarre, but when I was when I would physically be out of the country, I would I would feel like there's a boundary. Yeah. I'd get the same emails, but I'd be like, you can't come and find me. Not that anyone come get to my to house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know I exactly what you mean. I think that's part of the reason I moved to Bruges and Barcelona for a while. And both times I was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. I need a break. <laughs> like I need to just go away somewhere. And part of it was just like almost like a, a retreat, just sort of getting away from everything. But it's just reminded me actually of something else um, just lastly that really spoke to me was this idea of having some boredom back in your life because the drama has been reduced from not maybe going out all the time and yeah. leaning into that boredom I think it's quite quite healthy as well definitely I mean I, I don't know I've, I've I find it I'm never bored because I always there's always something I want to listen to or read or watch or um, but then I'm an introvert so I don't really need uh people as much as other people do so i i can understand why i think extroverts have probably struggled the most over the past year because if if they need that kind of injection of um social vigor to kind of feel recharged then that must have been really tough um but i'm good at being alone yeah, me too. It's a bit of an introvert's dream. And I feel like maybe it's controversial to say you enjoyed lockdown, but I'm I'm going to say it. I did kind of enjoy lockdown, but yeah. that doesn't mean I was glad it happened. But no. the quiet, yeah, the quiet, um, it was basically the boundaries. It was like a big boundary that just was there. I was like, oh, I yeah. don't need an excuse. There is an excuse. Um, I literally can't go and see you. <laughs> yeah, what a shame. Um, but no, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I could have spoken to you for much, much longer about all of your different books, but I'm really, really glad to have read this um, new book. Sunshine Warm Sober is out now, or it will be out in a few days of this podcast going live. So thanks for coming on. And it's, yeah, congrats again for a great book. Thank you so much for having me. This was real joy.